The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself, with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty, or I have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking with you. At that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman, but still no one said, what are you looking for, or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Christ? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word, and they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Aside from the Passion narrative, that's one of the longer Gospels we hear in the Sunday Mass. And today, in the continuation of that theme of dying well in order to live well, facing the temptations that, that come to us as we are nearing death, we face the temptation of impatience. Now, the, the remedy, the virtue that aids us in impatience is actually the third of the theological virtues. It's known as the queen of the virtues, and that is charity. So we began with Jesus' temptation in the desert, where we face our own temptations of doubt, and that is correlated to faith. Whenever we doubt, our response is to actually have faith, to believe in what God tells us, to believe in what he is doing, whether we see that or not. Last week, we faced the transfiguration and Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain seeing a glimpse of heaven. And in the moments where we despair, we are called to seek hope so that even when it can appear that we're at the rock bottom, we recognize that there is something anchoring us, something helping us to persevere on in the moments of, of great challenge. And that is hope for what God shows us. So we have faith in what God says. We have hope in what he's shown us. And now we learn about charity. What does it mean to love? And that word love is grossly, grossly misused in our society today and highly confusing. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I love my mother. Can we tell the difference? Not by the language. Mom, I love you more, by the way. So our, our language is inadequate when it comes to this virtue of love. It's important to even kind of go back to the Greek and just kind of get this understanding. So real quick, Greek lesson. Three words often associated that we use to translate love. Uh, they are agape, eros, and philio. Uh, there's some others, but we won't worry about those right now. So philio, F, no, P-H-I-L-O, F, <laughs> wrong. P-H-I-L-O, philio. Philio love is that of a brotherly, a sisterly love. It's the love we actually should impart to one another. That is, is a natural human love. And so I can say, I love my servers. I love them with a filio type of love. Then we have eros, E-R-O-S. It's more of like that erotic, that intimate love. It's a love you often uh, witness between a husband and a wife, spouses. Romantic love. I do not have eros love for my servers. <laughs> so again, we're distinguishing here. And then the last is agape love, A-G-A-P-E. And agape is, 
is beautiful because it's that sacrificial love. It's the love that actually is to lay down our life for another. It's the love Christ has for us. It's the love we see embodied on the crucifix. So we have these different types of love, and when we speak about love, we, we, we make these distinctions in our mind, but our language lacks this. So we have the filial love, that, which is, we're all called to share, the eros love, that love that's specifically between spouses, and then that agape love, that sacrificial love, that love Christ has for us, and it's also a love we can have for each other. But when we hear this gospel today of the Samaritan woman, not only is she encountering love incarnate, literally Jesus Christ in the flesh who says he is love, she also has another, she has another reality happening. Her identity is being revealed to her. And it's being revealed by love himself. And whether or not you've ever caught this in the gospel, I'm just going to kind of draw your attention to it real fast. She goes through what I would consider like five stages of transformation. The very first beginning of the encounter, it's very plain as day. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We have nothing in common. Why are you talking to me? It is very hard. It is very rigid. It is very, you're you over there. I'm me over here. Don't cross that line. So she starts by calling him a Jew. As they continue this conversation, he starts he has so many great lines in here but he starts talking to her about this water and again on this practical level you're just thinking like yeah water cistern well okay and he says but if you knew if you knew who is talking to you and asked offering you water you would ask me for the water and she's so stuck in that place of logic well he doesn't have a bucket doesn't have a spoon doesn't have any way to get this like that doesn't make any sense and so her level of respect and her level of identity is kind of changing. They're, they're developing something here. So she goes from calling him a Jew, and she starts calling him sir. Right? Sir, you do not even have a bucket. Cistern's deep. Where can you get this living water? And then Jesus answers again. Everyone who drinks from this water is going to remain thirsty. You're going to need more of it. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to quench. You're just going to want more. However, I have this water that you'll never thirst again. Now, she's still stuck in that practical place. There's a few other things to note about her. She's coming out in the middle of the day. It's, there's kind of two reasons the time is given to us in this gospel. One is because it, it, sits, it sets the scene more dramatically for us. No one in their right mind in Israel would go to, in the middle of the desert, a well at noon if they could help it. It's hot. It's it's ugly outside, it's messy, it's blech. No, no fun. But why is she going at that time? Because she is cast out from the society of the other Samaritans. We find out why, because she's had a lot of guys in her life. And the current guy is not a guy that she should be with. Okay. And so she's outcast. She, the other people don't want her around. But also, the time is there because in other parts of the Gospels, time is given to us when transformation occurs. When something radically happens to an individual that changes the course of their life forever. Why would you not remember that time? I guarantee if I were to ask any adults here who were baptized as an adult, 
they'll remember the date of their baptism. So for me, April 3rd, 2010. I know that like the back of my hand because that day radically changed my life forever. Just like this encounter is changing hers. So she wants this water that he speaks of because she doesn't want to go out at noon anymore. She's stuck in this practical place. Okay. Give me this water so that I may not be thirsty. You have to keep coming here to draw water. He says, okay, I'll do it. Go get your husband. And that's where everything comes out. Now, does Jesus make her feel bad about that? Nope. Does Jesus condemn her? Nope. Does Jesus do anything negative towards her? No. But she has more transformation happening. Because she goes from that Jew to the certain now saying, whoa, he's like talking about my life. How does he know that? He might be a prophet. So she's seeing him differently. She keeps going on and they keep talking about this place of worship and, and he gives her more illusion as far as like the worship of the Father and where that's going to occur. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then she makes this point. As a Samaritan, I know that the Messiah is coming and the one called the Christ. She knows it. She doesn't really know she's talking to him. That's kind of funny. But she knows it. And so what does he say? I am he. And it's at that moment that the conversation kind of stops, like the encounter stops. Like, could you imagine, though, she's kind of out there? I would just imagine her facial expression. It's like, yeah, I've heard about this Messiah. It's the Christ. He's like, yep, that's me. Like, just draw a drop. But the, the story changes really quick because now all of a sudden the disciples return. They're like shocked he's talking to this woman. Like, what's going on? And she leaves. She goes into the town and what does she say? She says, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Christ? So again, Jew, sir, prophet, Christ. There's Messiah in there as well. She's not turned off by him. In fact, she goes to bring more people to him. How amazing is that? And she goes back to the people that have neglected her, who have ostracized her, who have banished her out. She says, you got to come and meet this guy. And so they go out. Meanwhile, then they have their conversation that continues on. And this is really important because Jesus, he says this, they're like, they're concerned about his, his eating. He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is nourished and fed by when we come to him. Do you, is that not mind-boggling that we can actually, through our actions, our choices, our saying yes to God, can actually nourish him? The one who nourishes us? Is that not a little confusing? And yet that's exactly what God wants. He says, those who come to me, those who's, who, who, who follow my will, are the ones by whom I am nourished. That's, that's great. That's awesome. I can actually feed Jesus the way he feeds me if I say yes to him. 
So it keeps going, right? And he's talking about the crops and the sowing and the reaping, and that's got its own awesome story. And then all of a sudden, these Samaritans, they start coming out because he says this, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. I know full well, and we should all know this, that generally speaking, the benefits that we encounter in, the, in these moments are not things that we've per se planted, but we are now reaping. And for the farmers out there, you know exactly what this means. You have to plant something, take care of it, water it, nurture it, and it might be a while before it grows. The same is true in our faith life. Yeah, I get to see fruits of what the previous priests have done here at St. Bernard's. And, and for you, you get to see the fruits of what previous parishioners have done here at St. Bernard's. We are reaping the benefits of our ancestors and generations upon generations before us. But that means that we need to replant some stuff too. We can't just take it all and put nothing back. So when all this comes out, we see that this woman's identity wrapped up in this conversation is that of one of entire love. The woman is transformed in a conversation. We can be transformed in a conversation with God. What that requires is that we stop monologuing with God. And what I mean by that is we stop coming into the church and saying, all right, here's my list. Take care of this. I'll see you later next week. Instead, we come in and we dialogue. We sit, we talk, we speak, and then we become quiet. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, it's not simple, but we practice this. I guarantee no one has a conversation with someone and just talks the whole time and doesn't let the other person get an edge in and has a good relationship with that person. We know who those people are. We might be those people. We have to stop and listen to what God says. And if you're like, well, I'm ready, I'm listening. Well, God speaks through his word in scripture. He speaks through, we pray the priest in the homily. He speaks through the sacraments. If we're only talking to him once a week for an hour, is that going to fulfill a good conversation? Probably not. If we talk to him every day for at least five or ten minutes, is that going to be a big difference? Yeah. So conversation is important. Her transformation was not kept to herself. She went back. Many believed in him because of her testimony. And then once they showed up, many more believed because of his word, what he spoke, because they started to have a dialogue with him. So if we've been transformed, if the Lord has done something in our lives, thanks be to God, that is awesome. But we cannot and should not keep that to ourselves because that is not love. God's love for us translates to our love for God and to others. So this virtue, charity that we're talking about, conflicting or uh, responding to impatience, because when we're sick, when we're not feeling well, when we're ill, the last thing we want is to be burdened down with stuff. We become impatient because it's that much harder to do something. There's a, a former parishioner of mine 
he would talk to me about this often. As he got older, he, he's in his 90s now. I'm like, that's awesome. And he struggles to button his shirt. That frustrates him. He's 93 years old. He, he struggles to button his buttons. He still does it. It just takes him longer. And he's like, I'm so impatient about this. And I tell him, but that's an opportunity to, to die into love. It's an opportunity to let someone love you and help you button your shirt if you want. So I've helped him button his shirt, button him his shirt a few times. Like, you know, imagine the humility that takes. Love is what God wants us to respond to when we become short, when our kids are doing things that we don't want them to be doing, and it's like, sit still, be quiet. Instead, we want to say, I love you. Let's not do that right now. This love, it, it, it's not just for us. And it's not just from us. It's a love from God. St. John talks about this. He says, The charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Holy Spirit is given to us by love of the Father. And so it's important to distinguish charity and false charity. Last point. If someone readily speaks about God, readily shares their faith, readily prays, does all these things, distributes alms, fasts, and yet if they do all of that quote-unquote good stuff, but they seek after vain glory, they, they seek pride, or they have this hatred towards their neighbor or this person who upset them, then their heart is still impure. And that charity is not pure charity. It's tainted to some degree. And so to, to give complete and total and perfect charity requires that we have a pure heart. Having a pure heart means that we confess our sins so that we can receive the grace and the cleansing and the healing from God who is perfect love. And I, I mentioned this, this past week in a homily to some group. Confession is not simply just saying the stuff that was bad. Or confession's not coming in and, and trying to justify being a good person. Confession has, has nothing to do with whether or not a person is good or bad per se. Confession has everything to deal with identifying my fault, my failure, my weakness, the times where I've chosen to not go towards love, towards Christ, and just simply be, just putting it simply, saying I'm a sinner and I need help. It's not meant to be a scary thing. It's not a place of judgment. It's a place of great healing. It's a place of great mercy. It's a place of great freedom. Because God's love wants to enter into what we think is the messiness of our life. God loved this woman. He met her right where she was at. He spoke with her. He conversed with her. He, he showed her something that was more true than she could understand. And in the end, she chose him and was transformed. And so for us, the, the challenge today is this true art of living well and dying happily consists 
in persevering in the true and perfect charity of love. So if something in us isn't quite pure yet, we have a remedy for that. And if we are in that place of pureness, then we owe it to other people to share it. Because the woman didn't keep it to herself. Once she was transformed, she went and told others. Once we are transformed, we need to go and tell others. So when we receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, because we have because we shouldn't be receiving the Eucharist if we have mortal sin on our soul, if, if we don't believe in what is being preached and taught by the church, if we don't believe in the true body and blood presence of Jesus, then we shouldn't be receiving communion. But if we are in that place of grace, and we receive him, and we have this conversation, and we are transformed, then when we leave here on mission, we owe it to someone else to let them know about who Jesus is. That's Lent. That's life. And as we continue to die in Lent, we seek to live for eternity. Souls are, your souls are way more important than a person's opinion of you. Your soul is way more valuable than someone's perceived idea of you. Because the person who ultimately judges us is God. At the end of the day, it is God judging us. It is not anyone else in this church. And so God, he knows our heart. The other part about confession is he wants us to be able to speak our heart. He wants us to be freed and to be able to say out loud those things that have impeded us, affected us, hurt us hurt others because at the end of the day God is love he's agape he is sacrifice and he loves this woman and he loves us so when we're impatient we have to learn to die to that impatience and to love with a pure heart a love that comes from God and goes back to God